0: Today on CityCast Pittsburgh, there's been a lot of talk lately about reproductive rights that includes people having the power to decide if and when they want to have children. But when kids go through treatment for cancer, there's a risk it could affect their fertility. Pittsburgh is on the cutting edge of something that could help, though. It's called Pediatric Fertility Preservation, and Children's Hospital has a whole program dedicated to the process. I'm here with Amy Jetka, a patient navigator who helps children and families with their options. It's Thursday, July 14th. I'm Morgan Moody, and this is CityCast Pittsburgh. I've definitely heard of, you know, adults going through all the steps that they need to go to for fertility preservation um, if they have to go through cancer treatments, but is this sort of thing a, a common practice at all in pediatric oncology?
1: It is becoming a very, very common practice because over the last, I would say, about decade, um, we have new procedures that we are able to do. You know, pediatric cancer nowadays has about an 84% cure rate, which is huge. This number has gone up infinitely in the last few decades, and because the cure rate is so high, we have so many more cancer survivors who are facing these issues of infertility. So that's why this program is so important to us here at Children's and across the country.
0: And... How do you even begin to approach this kind of conversation with parents? Because I feel like it's already such a heavy topic, their child going through treatments for cancer. Gosh,
1: yeah, Morgan, that's a great question. And you're right. This is probably the trickiest, most intense time to have these conversations because parents are getting the worst news of their lives that their children have some type of cancer that has the potential to render them infertile or put them at a higher risk of infertility. You know, these conversations often happen in multiple conversations. Um, mm. And depending if they're coming in inpatient or outpatient and being diagnosed. The team who is with them giving them their diagnosis will let them digest that information. And when they feel the time is right, they'll bring up fertility preservation and ask if the family is, you know, prepared to have our team come and talk to them. I've been turned away and then asked to come back. And, you know, I've certainly done that and still had wonderful conversations with parents um, when they were ready. I've also, you know, gone for consults and parents are ready to hear that information now. But, you know, it's, it's interesting because when Parents are faced with just the life-altering news that your child has cancer. That control is immediately taken away from them. So I would say a majority of the time parents are very – I wouldn't say thrilled, but, you know, appreciative and happy to discuss this because it it is almost giving them a little bit of control back making this decision to either go forward with fertility preservation or think about it and talk about it as a family.
0: And you're having that. Are you having that conversation with basically every patient that kind of comes through the door and has to go through these treatments?
1: You know, what we know now that we didn't know even a decade, two decades ago, we know what chemotherapeutic agents and at what doses put patients at a significant risk of infertility and same with radiation and and certain types of surgeries. Not all types of cancer and all types of cancer treatment is going to put a child at significant risk of infertility. We like to have these conversations with everybody and that's something that we're working towards as a team. Right now, our more emergent consult cases are those children who are starting their treatment emergently and who we know are going to be at a significant risk because of the treatment that they're getting.
0: And so how early in someone's treatment um, does your team start suggesting this to, to the parents or caretakers?
1: Ideally before treatment starts. Um, And again, this is very different case by case because sometimes you'll have, for instance, a teenager diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma and that workup allows for a little bit more time to do standard of care procedures or set up a a surgical procedure if it's necessary. Um, Other times you have patients coming in with faster growing, solid tumors that require emergent treatment. Mm -hmm. We prefer to start it before chemotherapy, but just because a child is starting chemotherapy the next day doesn't automatically disqualify them.
0: What's the process like for children who've already gone through puberty? For children with, with eggs, with sperm, what's the different procedures that are offered to them?
1: So patients who are post pubertal or who have already gone through puberty and are making sperm, the standard of care is semen cryopreservation or sperm banking. Um, It's the easiest. It's the most inexpensive and it's kind of foolproof. It's a non-invasive procedure. It's very easy. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit of a more intense, longer process for the egg or embryo freezing. So uh, it's about two weeks of hormone injections to stimulate that ovary, make it really big, really cystic. Um, And then once it is um, stimulated enough, then they undergo a procedure to retrieve the eggs and then they are frozen or cryopreserved until they are ready to use them.
0: So what about kids who haven't gone through puberty yet? Like they're not producing eggs yet.
1: So the amazing thing about science now, specifically here in Pittsburgh, we're really on the forefront of this with our lab um, and Dr. Kyle Orwig's lab over at the McGee Women's Institute. The process that they would go through is called ovarian tissue cryopreservation. Oh, okay. It's a laparoscopic surgical procedure, um, meaning it's very minimally invasive, but Mm -hmm. we still, you know, you undergo general anesthesia, you're in an operating room, but just three small incision sites, we remove one whole ovar. When that ovary is removed, we process some of the tissue to make sure that it's healthy tissue. Some of it, because it is a research protocol, will be stored for research. And then the majority of it will be stored for the patient for future use. Mm -hmm. So what we do when the patient is old enough and ready to have children, we can actually re-implant that tissue into their belly where the ovary once was that will actually re-stimulate hormone production. And we have had over 130 live births worldwide um, from this procedure.
0: Is that expensive at all? between the procedure and the storing?
1: Yeah. So yes, it is. However, here at Pittsburgh for our internal patients, the study actually covers the surgical procedure, the tissue processing, and the first year of storage, which is huge. Yeah. Um, And we actually are now doing this for uh, transgender patients as well. So we actually have transgender patients traveling across the country for not only this ovarian tissue cryopreservation procedure, but also for um, the testicular tissue cryopreservation procedure that we do on our males.
0: Oh, wow. That's amazing.
1: Yeah. So that that procedure um, is very similar, uh, although we do not take a whole testis out. We actually take what we call a wedge biopsy of one of the testes. Now, the only caveat with the testicular tissue cryopreservation, we do not have any human live births yet. So oh, okay. that is still an experimental procedure. Mm-hmm. We actually it's been successful in primates. We actually have um, a live birth back in 2016 of a female monkey named Grady, which stands for graft derived baby um, from a <laughs> testicular tissue um, Prior preservation procedures. So, you know, we have a lot of hope that in the future and by the time, you know, these males that we have done these procedures on in our oncology population, by the time they grow up and are ready to have children, we are very hopeful that we'll be successful in, in having some human
0: births. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I, I guess, I don't know, on the more psychological aspect of it, how do you have these conversations with kids? Like, how do the kids feel about having to go through this? Yeah, you know it's it's hard
1: um, and being in pediatrics and trained in pediatrics, you're trained from birth through early 20s right? So I might be having a conversation with a 16 year old and you know in that case I can sit down and say hey, have you thought about having a family in the future? What exactly does that look like for you? Mm-hmm. With the younger kids that's a lot more difficult because how do you have a conversation like this with a six year old? Right. So you know, we're very lucky to have an extremely talented psychologist here within our oncology department. I will say with the younger kids, a lot of these conversations have we have are mostly with the parents.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask, how are you making sure that this is the child's decision? You know, when they're a minor, are they capable of making a choice like this?
1: That's one of the things that actually we're getting ready to do um, here in the near future is is more so study that decision-making. And at what age are we able to put this decision on the patient? Um, you know, recently we had an 11-year-old who unfortunately relapsed with cancer, and we were having this conversation with his family. Um, and the family wanted him to make the decision. And we just didn't feel that that was an appropriate decision to put on an 11-year-old's shoulders. This patient in particular was not fully informed Developmentally, to make this decision. Yeah. So, you know, it's really a, a case by case scenario. A lot of the time, if I don't know the patient, if it's a brand new patient who's coming in, you know, I'll talk a lot to the primary team and the psychologist to see, tell me a little bit more about the dynamics of the family. Tell me about the child developmentally. Where are we?
0: Yeah, 11 very young. Um, I feel like to understand the full scope of that situation. Yeah. yeah. And we talked about how these medical procedures can get expensive. Do you know how much it is to store this after the first like year?
1: It's about 350 to $400 a year to continue storing this. So if you're thinking about That's not bad. It's not bad. But also when you're thinking about potentially, you know, a, a three-year-old undergoing a procedure like this, Timesing that by at least 20 years, right? It it can add up. And I have to say that's one of the things that is nice about working in pediatric cancer. A lot of people like to donate money to pediatric cancer and for things like this. So I never, ever, ever, I go in telling my families, I never want cost to be the limiting factor. If this is something you feel extremely strongly about and you want to pursue a procedure like this, we can make it happen and we can find funds for you.
0: And when, when can patients get access to um yeah, to their their stored sperm <laughs> or eggs. I was gonna say stored goods, but yeah. that sounds terrible. But yeah. No, uh, I kinda like
1: that comment. Um <laughs> whenever they want, it's theirs. So, you know, all we're responsible for is helping them either, you know, get the tissue out or, you know, facilitate currying their sperm to from children's hospital or their home to, you know, the proper site, but it's theirs
0: reproductive healthcare it's it's a hot topic right now you know a lot of people probably wouldn't think of this necessarily being under that umbrella but it absolutely is so what have you heard from children or young adults who have gone through this process
1: i have yet to meet somebody who has regretted going through this process this is a very unique service that we are able to offer now that was not offered even 5 10 years ago so i would say for the most part patients are Relieved that we have thought about this for them in a moment that was just so stressful and this control was being taken away from them. Yeah. Another thing that we're trying to do is bridge this gap between being diagnosed with cancer and then when you're over five years off therapy and being transitioned into survivorship. A lot of people, you know, have just been holding on to this question and they haven't known who to ask am I going to be able to have kids? Or, you know, I've had the sperm sample that's been frozen for 10 years now. Do I have to keep paying for it? Do you think it's still good? Do you think I'm able to have children? So, you know, being able to have these conversations and with the knowledge that we have today is really empowering. And uh, when patients do decide to, you know, either get their samples out of storage or if they're able to have kids on their own. It is such a blessing and just, you know, so incredible to see these patients come so far and have these families once they're, you know, survivors.
0: Yeah, that's that's beautiful. Um, thank you so much for your time today. I Amy, mean, this was this was great.
1: Of course. Thank you so much for having me, Morgan.
0: is before you go and we're keeping it on theme there's been a big surge in out-of-state patients looking for abortion care here in Pittsburgh now that Roe v Wade is over and that's led to longer wait times for appointments a staff member at Planned Parenthood of Western Pennsylvania told WESA that wait times have doubled from two weeks to four An Allegheny Reproductive Health Center has seen triple the usual number of clients they're also hiring if you know anyone interested in that work Meanwhile, some state leaders say they want to protect people from out of state from prosecution by their home states. Governor Tom Wolf signed an executive order on Tuesday ensuring that access. He says he'll refuse requests from other states to arrest or detain abortion seekers and anyone who provides or assists with their procedures. And local state representative Emily Kincaid is working on similar legislation. She's co-sponsoring a bill that would ban law enforcement from cooperating with out-of-state investigations into abortion patients. City Councilor Bobby Wilson introduced something similar earlier this month that would protect providers inside the city. CityCast Pittsburgh is wrapped for the day. If you like what we're doing over here, spread the word. Leave us a review and subscribe to our morning newsletter. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city, so we'll see you then. Ugh, I saw a huge rat yesterday and I was like that rat must be sick because it was the daytime and it was out. Does that mean it has rabies, or that's just, that's just raccoons?